for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which were which are the seven spirits of god sent into out into all the earth he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat at the throne and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is the word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Darcy. I wake up freakishly early on Sundays, and, uh, and I have to eat like a horse. We, we've been doing three services, which has been just an absolute ball. But uh, we get up early, and Emily gets up early uh, to make a mountain of food. And uh, after I got ready this morning, I came into the kitchen, and she asked me the question that she asks me every Sunday, because she knows me. The question is, how are you feeling about the sermon? And I, I stood there for a second, and I said, you know what? This sermon is completely incoherent if Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead. <laughs> like, it is by no means a practical sermon. I really don't even aspire to be all that practical. I just want to say things that are true. And this sermon, in this sermon, I will not tell you three ways to be a better you. I have really almost no action steps or points of application. But since we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, there's something really good in it for us. And so I want to encourage you with that. I remember where I was standing in U.S. history in high school at Metro Christian Academy when the first plane hit. Do you remember where you were? And it, it felt like an out-of-body experience. I, I, I know where I was, I knew right where I was, and I grabbed my Bible. I was a very zealous teenager, and, uh, and I was like, well, this is clearly the end of the world. And so I went to the end of the Bible, and I proof-texted something that could like serve as evidence for my belief that this was the end of the world. And I was getting ready since, you know, the apocalypse is upon us to preach, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to all of my private Christian school classmates. <laughs> and my teacher really wisely told me to shut up and to sit down. <clears throat> and we sat down and with the rest of the world, we watched as the second plane hit and those twin behemoths came like tumbling down to the ground. Maybe you would remember where you were when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Or, or in different periods of history, there have been things that have symbolized for people, this is it. Everything is coming to an end. Armageddon, the apocalypse, you know, use your dystopian language of choice. This is it. And often in moments like that, believers have turned to, you know, books like Revelation, looking for clues, trying to make sense of, is this how it's all going to go down? They've turned to that ethereal and esoteric mystery of a book, Revelation, seeking answers. 
And while there are parts of this book, Revelation, that are forward-facing, that give us some, like N.T. Wright calls them, signposts pointing into the fog about the great conclusion to the human story, it's really important for us to know as we read the book of Revelation that it was written firstly as a pastoral letter in the style of apocalyptic literature, speaking to the needs and the fears and the situations of seven churches living in the first century, these first century listeners. And these were churches, as John identifies for us in chapter 1, who were undergoing suffering and persecution as believers, and they needed insight and encouragement for how to endure suffering when the end was in all likelihood far from near. The revelation, it self-identifies as the revelation, the Greek word's apocalypsis. It's an unveiling of spiritual realities that can't be seen by the naked eye that we can't understand on our own. Peter White, who's sitting right here, who's much smarter than me and understands Greek better than I did, sent me a note uh, giving a great insight to the first four words of the book. Uh, it says, the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is how the NIV translates it. The revelation whose origin is in Jesus Christ. This is how the NIV brings it to us, but it may better be translated of. The revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning everything that follows in this book is getting us a bigger and better glimpse of who Jesus is and what He's like. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the chief tasks of the book uh, for people who are, are in a very confused world and a world that's antithetical to the way of Jesus is to give them a clearer view of who He is. And in giving them a view of who He is, they see themselves more clearly. <clears throat> I do love the song, uh, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. But I think they get the next, rhyme, the next line wrong. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Actually, I think they grow a little bit clearer. If we see Jesus as He is, the world begins to make more sense. One of the deep hopes of this book of Revelation is to help us make sense of our world by seeing Jesus as He is. So last week we studied Revelation chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3 we have these seven letters written by Jesus addressed to the churches in cities like Pergamum and Smyrna, really great names. And, and then as we turn to chapter 4, John gets caught up in this vision. And, in, and I'm going to share, actually I'm going to read all of, of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 in the next couple of minutes. What I want you to try to do is with childlike imagination visualize the whole thing. Don't be like, don't like scrupulously, you know, pour over every word. I just want you to, th I want you to feel more than I want you to think. I want you to envision the whole thing as best as you can. Uh, John, uh, chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 4 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. John is there, and in this vision he sees the doorway. It's, it's separating earth and heaven. The door is open, and he's being beckoned to come in. The voice I'd heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must soon take place after this. John goes on to begin to describe what he's seeing. Do you remember, did y'all ever watch Lost? In that first episode of Lost, Jack wakes up in the, in the rainforest and it's all quiet and a little too quiet. And then he turns the beach and then he sees all of the chaos of the, the plane wreck in, in front of them. John, as he comes through the door of heaven, is trying to describe all these things that he's seeing at once, and he can only describe it as quickly as he can write. 
John says, at once I was in the Spirit, and, and there before me, he's come through the doorway, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Okay, so see it. You've, you've come through the doorway. There's the massive throne with him who sits on the throne, who's like, like precious jewels. He's covered in these precious jewels. Surrounding his throne are 24 lesser thrones. The 24 is like a double of 12. We've got like the 12 tribes of Israel. We've got the 12 apostles. Old and new are together circling around the throne in robes of white. They've each got a crown on their head. There's a circle of rainbow around the throne. Lightning is striking. Thunder is rumbling. Let me read verses 6 through 8. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. To get to the throne and to access him who sits on the throne, you must first pass through the water. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. This is where it starts to get a little like the movie Tron or that one part of Ghostbusters. It's a little trippy. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered in eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is, who is to come. Uh, we've, we've seen the, the throne and him who sits on the throne, the rainbow, the lightning, the thunder, the 24 elders. Now we've got these four creatures. The, the lion is the noblest, the ox is the strongest, the human is the wisest, the eagle is the swiftest. They each represent aspects of creation. Then verses 9 through 11 say, Whenever the living creatures, these four living creatures, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne which, by the way, they do all the time. That's what it says. Whenever they do this, the one, they worship the one who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Day and night, the four living creatures cry out holy to the one who's on the throne. And when they do so, the elders remove their crowns and they join the choir and say, you are worthy. John's first glimpse of heaven is of the majesty of the one who is seated around the throne with the elders and the creatures. And John is given a vision of a rightly ordered world. In a couple of minutes, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer where Jesus prays, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here in heaven, His will is being done, His name is being honored, His kingdom exists. It's a rightly ordered world. Heaven is embracing the will of God. 
at, at the very like embryonic stages of our church, a group of us were reading through the book of Nehemiah and, and, and praying about what God was inviting us to do. And we remember how in Nehemiah chapter 2, he's surreptitiously gone to the city of Jerusalem and he's inspecting the walls and he sees the scope of the damage. He's trying to answer the question, what's the problem? And, and then he recruits people to help. And similarly, we were asking, what is the problem, Lord, that you're inviting us to be a part of solving? What, what is, uh, you know, if there's a problem, in what ways is the church part of the solution? We started to, to wrestle with this question, and one of the things that we came up with is, one of the problems is that God's name is not being honored in our city. When God's name is not being honored, it, it leads to all kinds of idolatry. And where you have idolatry, you always have injustice. And when you have injustice, you have the diminishing of the human dignity of people who are made in God's image. When his name is not adequately honored, it leads to the, the diminishing of the glory of God in human beings and to all forms of suffering. But in heaven, it's not so. It's a rightly ordered world with him who sits at the throne in the middle of it. And so John is catching all of this at once. He passes through the doorway of heaven. He's gotten an initial survey of everything that's going on. And then he begins to describe the next thing he sees in chapter 5. He looks at the one who is seated on the throne and it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides. And it was sealed with seven seals. In the ancient world, a scroll would be rolled up real tight, it would be tied, and especially if it was important, they'd pour hot wax on it, and then someone would use their signet ring while it was still hot and in liquid form, and they'd put their ring onto it, and as it cooled, it would dry. Uh, important documents may be secured with seals of six witnesses, each witness having their own signet ring, so it would be difficult to uh, like create a fake version of it. This scroll has seven seals on it, and it secured the contents of the scroll for the rightful recipient. Typically, scrolls would only be written on one side. This one's written on both sides. It harkens back to Ezekiel chapter 2, like 9 and 10, where Ezekiel has a vision of a scroll with writing on both sides. It's like this scroll has a lot to say. In the coming chapters, once the one who's worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals is identified with the breaking of each seal, there's a sense of, of, of meaningful action that happens on the world. And it, taken together with this mystery around the scroll, we see that the breaking of the seals and the unfurling of the scrolls represents the reckoning of creation. That the world, different than heaven, no longer, not, not submitting to the rule and the reign of God is going to be reckoned. There's going to be a sorting. There's going to be judgment. Things are going to be put to rights, the opening of the scroll represents the sorting of the world. And John begins to wonder, well, who's going to open it up? When are they going to open it? When are, how are things going to get started? To whom is the scroll addressed? We read verses 2 through 4. And John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could uh, open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says, I wept, I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. What evokes the tears is the, de the delay of the reckoning of creation. Injustice is going to persevere unless someone can be identified who's worthy to open the scrolls. 
You've had your heart broken by like the, just the situations our world is in. I remember a, a kind of a lesser situation when I was in college. I was talking to a person I cared about on the phone, and they were telling me about just how hard life was. And I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just like, like hormonal or something on that day, but I just wept. With my head on my desk in my dorm, I just wept for my friend. I felt so sad. And the language that, that's used here to describe John's tears is the language of deep grief. He's so sad. Then it comes to verse 5. It says, One of the elders said to me, Don't weep. And, and pay attention to the imagery here. It says, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. So notice this. The elder says, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. So John's like, okay, where's this lion that I'm going to see? We turn to verse 6 and it says, but then I saw not a lion, but a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Had to be somewhat of a gory vision if you picture a white lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John hears a lion, but he sees a lamb there seated in the middle of the throne. Pay attention to that location. This comes from St. Augustine in the 5th century. He said, so the true victory of our Lord Jesus Christ was achieved when he rose again and ascended into heaven. Then was fulfilled what you have heard when the apocalypse, Revelation, was read. The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. It is he that is called a lion, he that is called a lamb. He's called a lion for courage, a lamb for innocence. A lion because unconquered. A lamb because gentle. And when this lamb was slain, he conquered by his death the lion who prowls around like a, seeking those whom he may devour. Talking about the devil. Who could avoid encountering the teeth of this lion if the lion from the tribe of Judah had not conquered? Against the lion fights a lion, against the world a lamb. The devil was exultant. When Christ died, and by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It's as though he took the bait in a mousetrap. He was delighted at the death as being the commander of death. What he delighted in, that's where the trap was set for him. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord. The bait he'd be caught by, the death of our Lord, and Jesus Christ rose again. I love the scenes in the Gospels in the book of Acts. I see it in Matthew, see it in Luke, and then in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends. And Matthew's Gospel, he gives the great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go. And he's ascended. He, he, it's not a fancy elevator ride. He's, he's elevated to the place of glory and honor. In Acts, Jesus is veiled from their side and the angels appear. And we see from the ground up, so to speak, uh, Jesus' ascension, him returning to the place of glory. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the scene from heaven's perspective as the lamb who had been slain returned victorious. We read what happens when the lamb who looked as if he'd been slain returns. Verse 7 says, The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So now we've been caught up in the heavenly scene. Our prayers are there. When, when uh, he receives uh, the scroll, heaven begins to worship. The lamb takes it and the creatures fall down. The elders who have been worshiping him, who sit on the throne, fall down. They're holding the bowls of incense, which are our prayers, and they sing. And I want you to watch the ripple effect in verses 9 through 14. It says, they sang together a new song, saying, you are worthy. Previously, they sang this to him who sits on the throne, but now they sing it of the lamb who was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then the circle goes out. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. What's 10,000 times 10,000? 100 million. 100 million. They encircled the throne. That's a lot of angels and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Picture this many people saying this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. And then I heard every creature, it's going out even further, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures hearing all of this said, yes, that, amen. And they fell down and worshipped. So go back to seeing you've walked through the door of heaven, the throne, the rainbow, the lightning, the thunder, the elders, the, the living creatures, the lamb looking as if it's been slain, a hundred million angels encircling all of it, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth all crying out together, worthy is the lamb. It's gorgeous. The creatures shout an amen and the elders fall and worship. Now, it's gorgeous, but I want to ask you a question similar to what I asked last week. In what way is it useful? What practical purpose did this serve? If John is writing this chiefly to these people living in the first century, what good would this do them? At least two times in the sermon I'm going to reveal that I'm kind of a nerd. Uh, here's one of the first. You may have already identified others. But you remember that scene in uh, The Force Awakens? It's episode 7 of Star Wars. Okay. Where the, these, these two people who are like the seekers, they've heard the rumor of the Jedi, you know, the good guys, the Force. They've heard the names like Leia and, you know, um, Han Solo. And, but they, it's reduced to the status of legend because the good guys are like a, a thing of old if they ever existed because the bad guys are in charge, and then there's that chance encounter between the two seekers and Han Solo. They find out he exists, and they bring up all these names and legends they've heard. And then there's the scene that even showed it in the trailers where Harrison Ford, who is my favorite in absolutely anything, as Han Solo says, it's true, all of it. And I kind of, you know, you kind of get chills watching it, all those legends, the stories that you heard of all of old. It's true, all of it. 
I want you to imagine that you're a believer in Smyrna, you're a, you're a believer in Pergamum, you know, western Turkey, and you're half a world away from Jerusalem, you're decades after the resurrection, and you're suffering for a story that you believe to be true about a king that you can't see, a guy that you've never met. What difference would it make to you if you knew that the stories were true, all of them? What difference would it make in your life if you knew that the reason you were suffering was valid? It would make all of the difference in the world. The believers to whom John is writing knows what it's like, know what it's like to be beaten and to be bruised for their faith. They know what it's like to feel like lambs being led to the slaughter. And in this glimpse of heaven, we see how in the mathematics of God, the suffering of the lamb for us figures to our victory. The one who suffered is the one who is entrusted with the reckoning of creation and bringing to rights all those things that have gone so very wrong. And in this glimpse, this apocalyptic vision that John was given, the church would remember and hear again what they believe that our God reigns. The Lamb and the way of the Lamb is victorious. It's validated through suffering. And if we can patiently endure, we will reign with Him because it's true. All of it. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And in in the sixth book, which is called The Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis paints a picture of a world in which the good guys have been led underground into this kind of underworld where there is no light. And it's controlled by a witch. And the witch has convinced all of those who live in her underworld that there's no such thing as the sun. There's no such thing as the overworld. There's no such thing as the sky. There's no such thing as Narnia and certainly no such thing as Aslan, who is the Jesus-type character in this world. These are all childish fairy tales that these people have just made up. And the longer, you know, the protagonists are, are in her world of darkness, the easier it is to believe that she was telling the truth. And some of us can relate to being in such intense periods of darkness that we begin to believe things that in, in our, you know, our right mind we would know to be crazy talk. Some of us have, have suffered truly deep losses or been in periods of, of, of depression or loneliness or isolation when your, your mind plays tricks on you and it's not difficult to be isolated. It's not difficult to believe lies. The longer they were in her world of darkness, the easier it was to think that maybe she's telling the truth. They didn't realize there was an additional complicating factor that they were under the influence of a bewitching fire whose smoke clouded their minds. But one of them had this temporary moment of insight and he stomped out the flames with his own feet and their heads began to clear and this person spoke up. His name is Puddle Glum, by the way. Isn't that a great name? And he says... One word, ma'am, speaking to the witch, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we've only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself, suppose we have, then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. 
And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. So that's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for your supper, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the light. Now maybe the critics are right. I remember once I went to Shades of Brown and Brookside and and, in the back wall there was spray painted this quote attributed to a French philosopher. It's really encouraging. It said, man will only truly be free when the last king is strangled by the entrails of the last priest. (laughs) It's supposed to be funny. It's dark. Okay. (laughs) Maybe they're right. Maybe in millennia to come we will discover that Christians were the biggest dummies of us all, the greatest fools on earth. Maybe we'll find that incontrovertible evidence that religion and Christianity in particular was just the opiate of the masses. And maybe we'll discover the evidence that like, this was all made up by really clever strategists or by really deluded people who pulled off the greatest long con in history. But I believe it's true. Like Puddle Glum, I'm with Aslan, if, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. And I know many of you would say this too, that you've just seen too much. You've heard too much. You've, you've been through too much to believe it's not true. Think of this old hymn that says, Fearless of the world's despising, we the ancient path pursue, dying with our Lord and rising to a life divinely new. It's like, who who believes this anymore? It's an ancient path. It's, it's not trod on very often these days, but we believe it's true. All of it. Now, I don't know if you would want a vision like John had. If you read the following chapters, you may decide better against it. But John at the least had this vision. John saw the, the door of heaven open. He sees this whole magnificent scene. John, of course, believes. John can convince these first believers to believe, but we don't stand there. We're here. We're on this side of the door, and for us it feels very much closed. But there's hope for us, too. I want you to see where we ended the scene with the the lamb and the him who sits on the throne and the rainbows and the lightning and the thunder and going backwards. The the, the creatures leave. The angels are gone. The elders are gone. the, the, The four living creatures are gone. And we're back before John goes through that doorway. And we're at the end of Revelation chapter 3. And in the letter that Jesus addressed the church at Laodicea, he said these words thinking about the doorway. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and he with me. We see at the end of chapter 3 that Jesus is standing at the doorway of heaven. He's on the inside knocking for those who are in our world to open the door. The impetus for opening the door is not on him, it's on those of us who hear his voice. And what does he say will happen if we hear his voice and we open the door? Heaven will come to us. Jesus will come to us in the sharing of a meal. 
And I have heard this verse all of my life and always taken it in a kind of salvific sense that if you say yes to Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, he'll come in. But what if it's not primarily about salvation, but it's in a Eucharistic sense? That in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine, heaven is willing to come to earth for those who hear his voice and open his door. Every time the church gathers, if we'll hear his voice and open the door, it will be to his delight to come through the door to share the meal with us. To join us as we say the words, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you. You see, perhaps now why I said this message has no coherence if the story is not true. The message has no applicability if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, but we believe that he was, and therefore it makes all of the difference in the world. That when we gather for communion, as, as simple as this is, it's also quite sacred, as heaven is willing to come through the door to join with our frail humanity. And we're given this invitation every week to, as we hear his voice to ask him to come in to eat with us, to give us a fresh vision of who he is, to ask for the grace to continue to believe and to live as if it's true, all of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you, I think of those times when you interacted with regular people and you, it says the crowds, you looked at them and you loved them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we so often feel so lost, like looking around for your guiding hand, for your rod and your staff. We're looking for your comfort and we wonder where you are. Maybe we at times have felt like you're knocking and opening the door and joining us. And often in life we feel like the, the, the door's got a lock on it and the, the veil between us is very thick. I pray, Lord Jesus, that today as we receive Holy Communion, that you'd come and eat with us. Pray that you'd be present. Be present to Jesus, our great high priest, as you were present with your disciples in the breaking of bread. Be present with us as you were present with John, as you were present to the company of heaven after you'd been slain and returned victorious. Be present with us and remind us that it's true that you reign, that you are guiding creation toward a good end, and that you will reckon and restore and renew all things. Please do the things that we most need you to do and we cannot do for ourselves. Please heal the sick. Please forgive the sinner. Please befriend the one who's lonely. Please unite the church. Please fill and empower us with your Holy Spirit. Press your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be so much more than just that for us, but a means by which through the spirit we experience the presence of him who reigns, who is slaughtered for our sake. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we love you and we want to honor you and love you more. So give us a greater glimpse of yourself and in seeing you, we worship you. Pray in Christ's name. Every said. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.